Our sermon scripture reading this morning is found in the book of 1 John. I should say series of readings. There are uh, four readings this morning from the book of 1 John. We'll start on page uh, 1183 in your pew Bibles, if you're following along with that copy of the scriptures. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 to 2 to begin with, found on page 1183. Chapter 2. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice or the propitiation for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. And now we're going to turn the page, chapter 3, starting in verse 1 to verse 3. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. And now skipping down to verse 11, we'll read to the end of the chapter. This is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brother, my brothers, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. This, then, is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. 
Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we obey his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. Those who obey his commands live in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. And one more reading in verse 7 of chapter 4, which is on the same page in the Pew Bible, on the second column. Verse 7, chapter 4. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice, or better, a propitiation for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. We know that we live in him and he lives in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world we are like him. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment the one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Let's pray together. O oh Lord, what assurance of your love and what challenge that your love gives us to love our brothers and sisters because you loved us in the way that you have loved us, to sacrifice ourselves for those around us, 
to put ourselves last. Lord God, show us what it means to love in this way and empower us by your spirit who lives in us. And empower your servant, our brother, Pastor Mark, as he brings your word to us and explains it to us this morning. May your spirit open our ears and our hearts, and may your spirit empower his tongue to speak your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Amen. That was 1 John chapter 1. If we can hear what the Bible teaches, if we can accept what the Bible teaches, if we can believe what the Bible teaches, and if we can apply what the Bible teaches about who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ has done for us, then we can know. We can feel. We can experience. And we can trust in the reality of God's proven love for us in Christ Jesus.
Now already, I must step out of my argument to say two fundamental things. You can call these presuppositions to the truth we just heard. First, our perception of the role of the Bible, or we might say our submission to the authority and truth of the Bible, or even our relationship to the Bible, is key to the true Christian life. Another way of putting that is to say the Bible is the living, authoritative, and true word of the one true living and holy God, which he has given to us, his people, as well as to the whole human race, to reveal to us his righteous character, ways, and will. The only way we receive anything like the full benefits of the profound promises of God's word is to step into the pages of the Bible ourselves. Step into the text of the Bible ourselves as his adopted children, as believers and followers of Jesus, and as participants in the grand narrative of the creator God who gives himself to rescue the creation he loves. But secondly, none of this happens and none of this is possible on our own. None of it happens or is even possible apart from the help that comes only from the Holy Spirit. Jesus has done all the objective work necessary for our salvation, namely by giving himself up for us as the perfect and perfectly satisfactory substitute on the cross for sins, our sins, and even for the sins of the whole world, our scripture text says. Jesus Christ paid the full price, the full penalty for sin. But the Holy Spirit, he does all the subjective work necessary for us to be saved, to stay saved, all the way to the end, to receive what Jesus paid to provide. He brings us, that is, the Holy Spirit brings us out of spiritual death into spiritual life by the power of the resurrection, who is, by the way, a person, not a force, and he is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit quite literally seals us until, into eternal life until the day of redemption. When Jesus Christ returns to restore God's good and sovereign order in all creation, including in and among his people. We can't do any of this supremely spiritual work on our own. Jesus did his finished work, all that was, is, and ever will be necessary to purchase our pardon. And he did so in his sinless birth, his sinless life his attesting miracles, his authoritative teaching, and ultimately his death on the cross. All of this is called Jesus' objective work because it's historical and factual. It's begun and finished. Something like a transaction, a finished purchase, a job well done, begun and completed. Secondly, the Holy Spirit does everything necessary to make us saved, to bring us from spiritual death to newness of life, to birth us again into eternal life, 
and to sustain us in Christ Jesus all the way to the end and beyond, even until the very day of redemption. Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14 put it this way, In him, or in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, notice that, when you heard the word of truth, not sometime later, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Just a little bit later in Ephesians 4, the Holy Spirit through Paul adds to this sealing work of the Holy Spirit. In in chapter 1, verse 13, it was sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. In chapter 4, verse 30, Paul adds, until the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So we're either saved or not. But once saved, we are and we will be saved forever. We call this work of Christ by the Holy Spirit his subjective work. The Holy Spirit being the very presence of Jesus in us, and it's personal, it's intimate, it's God's love applied, it's transformative, it's forever, and it's all the Spirit. So if we can hear what the Bible teaches, if we can accept what the Bible teaches, if we can believe what the Bible teaches, if we can apply what the Bible teaches about who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ has done for us, then we can know, we can feel, we can experience and we can rest in the reality of God's proven love for us in Christ Jesus. Now, we could stop right now and say, Amen, come Lord Jesus. End the sermon and the service, and we will have worshipped truly and heard the true biblical Christian gospel unto salvation. You're blessed, Carla, but I'm afraid you're not that blessed this morning. We've got more work to do to close out our series on God's love. And one reason, one bit of work that we have to do is that some of us have been taught wrongly that we can be truly saved at one point in our lives and then be truly unsaved at another subsequent point in our lives. And that is not at all true. That is not what the Bible teaches. In fact, the opposite. Either we're saved or we're not. Which is to say that either the objective work of Jesus Christ combined with the subjective work of his spirit, the very presence of Christ in us, are sufficient to save us and to sustain us in faith and in eternal life, or they aren't. But because of the Holy Spirit's seal, we can't be saved and then at some subsequent point in our lives be unsaved unto condemnation. There are many verses we could go to. There's none better than Romans 8, chapters, verses 1 and 2. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life 
has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For each of our four installments of this series on God's love, we'd had a, we've had a controlling question. Here is our controlling question today. You have it there in your bulletins in the upper left corner, inside. How can I trust God's love in Christ Jesus for me? We've looked at know, feel, experience, now it's trust. So let's look at the central truth of our message for this morning and we'll go from here. God's love for the world, this is the cosmos and the text, creation, God's love for the world, including for you and me, has been ultimately and eternally proven in Christ's death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, and the ongoing presence of the Holy Spirit. One more time, God's love for the world including for you and me, has been ultimately and eternally proven in Christ Jesus' death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, and the ongoing presence of the Holy Spirit. Before we go any further, let's have a brief prayer. Lord, I thank you for this opportunity to preach your gospel, to teach your word in the Bible, to hear your gospel, to believe your gospel, to submit ourselves to the truth of your word in the gospel and to be saved. And salvation isn't a one-time event, Lord. We, we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be ultimately saved at the day of redemption. And it's all because of what Jesus did on the cross and what the Holy Spirit continues to do in us to save us, to sustain us, and to seal us so that your work will be completed in us. I pray, Lord, that you would open our minds and our hearts, that you would change anything that has been wrong, anything that we have grasped hold of that may have led to our detriment rather than our benefit. I pray, Lord, that you would make us people hungry for your word and for sound doctrine, healthy doctrine, whole doctrine that teaches the truth about you and about us and about all things that the Bible speaks of. And we will look forward to the way that you grow us up into the knowledge of Christ. And we will give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're not there already, I'd like to ask you to turn back with me to the wonderful little book on God's love that is 1 John. We'll be looking briefly, as it turns out, at five passages that Yuri read a bit ago from 1 John to bring together our series on the steadfast forever love of God in Christ Jesus. Now, as you turn there, let me just say, you may be wondering why I asked Dan to play that bit from world-class and controversial Canadian thinker and philosophy phenomenon, Jordan Jordan Peterson, to to begin my message. And I'd have to say it was something like 30% provocative, 30% instructional, and 40% example. 30% provocative because I always want to provoke us into thinking better and deeper. 30% instructional because I always get something new, fresh, and challenging from him. 40% example because I think Jordan Peterson's thirst for the truth ought to be ours too. And in addition to that, 
he also has a commitment once finding the truth to adjust his life to it. And he became a Christian recently within the last year because of this, much to his surprise. And I've often found his read on things, biblical and otherwise, to have the glint of the spirit in it. And I look forward to seeing what the spirit will do in his life now that the spirit is present in his life, that he has now believed on Jesus Christ. And the spirit comes, as we just read, when we hear the truth of the gospel, when we respond to it in faith, the spirit now is within us. We are children of God by the spirit of adoption. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Speaking of the Holy Spirit, let's remember that he truly is the author of the Bible. There are a bunch of human authors. We know that from Genesis to Revelation. Some of them writing multiple books, Paul writing the most, 12 books uh, likely. He didn't write Hebrews, so don't count that. But if you insist that he wrote Hebrews, okay, then maybe he wrote 13. But do you remember what Peter said in his second letter? First chapter, verse 16 and following For we do not follow cleverly devised myths when we, apostles, he's talking about, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, meaning in the scriptures, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no true prophecy of scripture was ever produced. I added true of scripture. It actually says for no prophecy was ever produced. He means true prophecy and he means scripture by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along or moved by the Holy Spirit. Now, the first lesson or the first point of truth that I'd like us to take in this morning is this. I'd like for you just to listen. If you, you normally take notes, that's, that's great. I appreciate that, and I normally encourage that. But I think for this morning, just listen to the truth uh, that I'm attempting at least to make clear, and then, and then come back to it. We've got these posted on our website. You can go back to them at any time. You can find them through uh, um, YouTube. But I just want us to hear. Number one, through John the Apostle, an eyewitness to the life, ministry, death, resurrection, and return to the Father of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit confirms that Jesus Christ died for the sins of the whole world. Jesus Christ died for the sins of the whole world. Now, I want us to make two thoroughly biblical and Christian distinctions with this statement. Jesus Christ died, quote now, for the sins of the whole world. The first distinction is between God's creation in general and the human aspect of God's creation that we've noted regularly. So there's creation out there and there's creation in here. Part of what the Holy Spirit is saying here in 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 through John, is that Jesus has done everything necessary to begin and to complete the full restoration of the whole creation to a condition 
of innocent beauty. Elsewhere, it's called the new heavens and the new earth. All sin cleansed, all corruption removed, all death abolished. Not that the non-human creation sinned. It didn't and it can't. It doesn't have volition. It doesn't have the, the ability to make choices. The point is that humanity's sin tainted it all. But in the case of us human beings, Jesus also did everything necessary to save us, to cleanse us from our personal and collective sins, and to reconcile and make us right with God in a special way. We, as the only part of his creation, having been created to bear his image and likeness on the, on the earth and to represent him on the earth. Because we human beings chose and still choose sin over God, we still choose independence from him over dependence on him. We still choose unbelief over faith. And as his image and likeness bearers and stewards of the earth, we must choose to believe and trust in him anew. The second distinction is between the potential salvation of every human being who ever lived and the actual salvation unto eternal life of those who've believed. This passage confirms that Jesus' objective work on the cross as a propitiation for our sins is sufficient to save all who would or will believe and receive his gift of eternal life. Now, I want to camp out here on this term propitiation for just a second. I know it's not one that we encounter any place else in the world, but a few times in the scripture. It's based on a Greek uh, term, hilasterion, and it doesn't merely mean atoning sacrifice. That, that, that's a brief way of getting it, but if you put it in English, you have to have like a couple of sentences to, to get at the meaning of this one concept, this one word. Hilasterion doesn't only mean the sacrifice. It means the place where the sacrifice is offered rightly, namely the mercy seat of God in the tabernacle or in the temple in the holy of holies on the top of the ark of the covenant that one place where the, where the uh, sacrifice or the blood is offered that place and the sacrifice and the effect of the sacrifice offered in that place that is propitiation and the effect of the sacrifice on the people namely forgiveness that's propitiation And Jesus was all of that. And that's the whole point of using this term, hilasterion, to him. He is the person. He is the place. He is the provision of God for the forgiveness of our sins. That's why I prefer, and you notice that Yuri prefers also, for us to use the term and then explain it because it's, it's, it's unbelievably profound. Atoning sacrifice, yeah, okay, it, 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 it's in the ballpark. But it's, it's, it's the place, it's the person, it's the provision, it's the effect as well. So the whole world, yes, the cosmos, it's, it's, it's cosmos again, which I take to mean not only human beings, not only the earth, but also the whole creation. That's, that's what the term means. 
for whom Jesus offered propitiation refers to the whole of creation and its restoration and its renewal, as well as mankind, or at the very least, that finite but blessed portion of mankind who would ever believe and be saved. I know Calvinists at this point are, gonna, are not going to be happy with me very well, but neither are Arminians, so I'm feeling pretty good right now. Um, let's read the text, verses 1 and 2 of John chapter 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. I really like the way the NIV puts it. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. I think that's beautiful and accurate. Verse 2. He, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, is the propitiation. He is the person. He's the place. He's the provision. He's the effect of forgiveness for his people. The propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also of the sins of or for the sins of the whole world. In other words, Jesus Christ died for the sins of the whole world. That is literally what it says. The second major point of living truth from God's word in scripture that we can be assured of in this text for this morning comes from chapter three, verses one, two, and three. But before we get there, let me just voice the main point. All of them are assuming that we're talking about through John the apostle, this is the authority of scripture, He was an eyewitness to the life, ministry, death, resurrection, and return to the Father. John isn't the the authority. God is the authority, but John is the true writer. The Holy Spirit confirms that. Here, Here it is. God demonstrates his love for us. The NIV and other versions use the term lavishly or lavishes as a, a, a verb. God demonstrates his love for us lavishly by adopting us as his beloved and forever sons and daughters. Please don't miss this. For some reason, I just think somebody needs to to hear this and take hold of it. God the Father once had a single son, coexistent, and co-eternal with him in eternity past. He gave up his single son to a sacrificial mission to save the whole world from the ravages of sin, corruption, and death. So that now he has an almost but not quite infinite number of sons and daughters to love and to cherish and to partner with for eternity future. Not that God needed anything or anyone else in eternity past to make him complete. The Trinity was complete and sufficient by itself. Thank you very much, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But it's clear that both his nature and his motive was, is, and forever be love. And love has both a subject and an object. God being the subject here, us, we being the object. Just one additional passage will help us here. Okay, maybe three. 
Romans 8, 14, you know I've got to go to Romans 8, 14, 15, and 16. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons and daughters. It says sons, but okay, 30-second Greek lesson here. Uh, Whenever a mixed group is talked about, mixed in terms of sex, male and female, the masculine, this is a a, a grammar term, the masculine, not male-type people, but the masculine uh, plural is used. So often, not always, but often in the New Testament, when we read in Greek, sons, it really means sons and daughters because it means that mixed group that it's talking about that has both men and women as a part of it. And this is true in this case as well. So it would be proper for us today to read it as sons and daughters. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons and daughters of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received... I love this. This is my favorite name for the Holy Spirit. The spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Verse 16, my favorite verse in the whole Bible, as you will know by now. The spirit himself bears witness or testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. What's the point? No one can ever take that away from you. They can bar you from communion. They can keep you from their fellowship. They can call you a heretic. But if you have the testimony of the Holy Spirit that you are a child of God, no one can take that away from you. No one. Galatians 4, verses 4 through 7. But when the fullness of time had come, and we could spend a lot of time on that, but we'll do that probably around Christmas time. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. And because you are sons and daughters, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son or a daughter, and if a son or a daughter, then an heir through God. Finally, Ephesians 1, verses 4, 5, and 6. In love, so that's the last two words. I don't know why they did the verses like this. But in love, last two words in uh, verse 4, starting a new sentence, comma. In love, verse 5, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved, that is, in the Son, in Jesus Christ. And so if we've recognized and repented of our sins, not as a one-time event, but as a lifestyle of repentance, if we've believed and trusted in the sufficient sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, his objective work, if we've submitted ourselves anew to the good, righteous, and sovereign reign of God, then the Holy Spirit will adopt us, has adopted us into God's family, and here's the kicker, over time and in eternity, make us like Jesus. That's his subjective work. Look with me at the text, 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. That's the ESV. I really like the NIV has lavished upon us. I think that's, that's just beautiful. 
whether it's technically accurate to the text is beside the point here. It's just, it's beautiful. See what kind of love the, Lord, the Father has lavished upon us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. We could also use the term, the the Christian theological term, sanctifies himself here, uh, which means cleanses himself. And we all, if we belong to him, want to be more like him, which is what I prayed for a little bit ago. So, through the John the Apostle, I witness to the life, ministry, death, resurrection, and return to the Father of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit confirms that God demonstrates his love for us lavishly, by adopting us as his beloved and forever sons and daughters. The third one is this. I'm just going to give it to you because we don't need any illustration because it's right there in the text. The love of God that is birthed in us by the Holy Spirit. Once saved, always saved, but you better be sure you're saved before you start thinking in those terms. The love of God that is birthed in us by the Holy Spirit results in two reciprocal relationships. First, we love God because he first loved us, and reciprocal means it's mutual. He loves us, we love him. He loves us, we love him. That's reciprocal, right? And we love each other mutually as his sons and daughters, as Jesus has loved us. Or we could say, because Jesus has loved us. We love him, he loves us, and we love each other. So now there's maybe even a triangle you think. He loves us, we love him, we love each other. That probably doesn't work very well, but uh, I think you get the reciprocal nature of God's love, both from him to us and also from us to him and to each other. Verse 11 and following. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. So this issue of loving each other and loving God is is, is essential to evidence of salvation. So if we were to take this a little further, if we ever encounter a cold, loveless Christian, we can make one of two conclusions. Not judgments, we are not to judge. That's up to God and he knows the status of every one of us. We can make one of two conclusions. Either this person has been so hurt and so wounded that the ability to love in any sort of external way has been killed in them. And that happens. I've met those people. I've been that person. Or 
not born by the Spirit, i.e., not a believer, not a Christian, needs Jesus' salvation, salva- saving, objective work as a first step. Verse 15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. I've often wondered how the churches, whether it was here in Canada or down south in the States, the way they treated and and, and literally hated black people or native people, how they got around this verse. How do you get, I guess probably by saying, well, he's not my brother. Uh, Not according to Jesus. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Finally, here's point number last, also known as number four, which is also known as our central truth of the message for this morning. God's love for the world, including for you and me, has been ultimately and eternally proven proven in Christ Jesus' death on the cross, in his resurrection from the dead, and in the ongoing presence of the Holy Spirit. Beloved, verse 7, chapter 4, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Stop there. Does that mean an unbeliever can't love? Well, not in a godly way. Not in a give my life for others kind of way. Our own children, yeah, our own family members, yeah, and and, and it happens every once in a while that somebody gives their life for another, but we're talking about godly love here without self-interest. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, We don't do any violence to the text, I don't think, if we say this is what proves God's love. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be, here's the word again, the propitiation, person, place, provision, effect for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. How can I know that God loves me? 
How can I feel God loving me? How can I experience God's love for me? How can I trust God's love for me? The answer in the Bible, without any sort of contradiction, is unanimous. And it's all wrapped up into the term, in Christ Jesus. And all we've seen over the last four weeks about what that means, in Christ Jesus, that's how we know, that's how we can feel, that's how we can experience, that's how we can trust God's love for us. And and, and if you still don't or still can't, if we still don't or still can't, know, feel, experience, trust, ask the Holy Spirit to do an extra special subjective work of love in your heart, mind, and soul, and these will fall into place for you. I know that sounds like religious talk, Christian ease, sometimes they call it. But we do not know the love of God in Christ Jesus apart from the Holy Spirit, and he must bring it to us. Because here's the thing. God has proven his love for us in the beloved, that is, in Christ Jesus. Once, for all, forever. He could do no more. He can do no more. That's it. That's all. Let's pray together. God, your text says that God is love. And I take that to mean God the Father is love. God the Son is love. God the Holy Spirit is love. That God in his fullest manifestation, God in his greatest and most profound expressions, whether we're talking about holiness or righteousness or mercy or compassion or care, God is love in each and every one of those manifestations. That whenever we read about you showing up in the scriptures, from Genesis to Revelation, you are love. That is who you are. And the supreme expression of your love was that you gave your son for us. Help us to know that you love us. Help us to feel you loving us. Help us to experience your love for us. Help us to trust your love for us, Lord. Not just because your word says so, which it does, and that would be a reason to believe it. But we are very needy and we need more. We We need to feel your love for us as well. Please help us with that. In Jesus' name, amen. 
I'd like for us to, to finish by hearing how John, by the Spirit, concludes and continues chapter 4. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has, not, has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these words. I pray, Lord, that you would give us a new awareness of both the objective work of Jesus on the cross and the subjective work of Jesus in the Holy Spirit. And that we will be whole Christians. We will be a whole church knowing and feeling and experiencing and trusting God's love for us in Christ Jesus. And, my, and this is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. See you next time. Thanks for coming.